Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Platform Enterprise, a podcast for people who are pissed off with capitalism. I'm your host, Rachel Donald. I'm an investigative journalist and a writer. You can find some of my work over at platformenterprise.com, where, importantly, you can also sign up to get these podcast episodes delivered straight to your inbox every week. On this week's show is Dr. James Dyke, a lecturer in global systems at the University of Exeter. I came across his work by reading an article about the fact that net zero is just a pipe dream and essentially a Trojan horse for continuing business as usual. I'm so thrilled that James accepted this invitation to come on the show. He discusses uh, carbon offsetting, the history of net zero, carbon credits, um, the psychological drives that kind of have made civilization depend on growth. Uh, he discusses also degrowth and growth agnosticism and... It kind of reveals how interconnected the problem of the climate crisis is and why, no, there's no quick fix. Um, but in light of the IPCC report, he says that we simply have to stop using fossil fuels uh, yesterday. This is such a fascinating conversation. And for somebody whose work is kind of dedicated to figuring out how much of a mess we're all in, James speaks with a lot of hope. We know the solutions. They are available to us. It might be difficult to scale them, but the answers are in our hands. We just need to apply them. If you enjoy this episode, please do subscribe over at platformenterprise.com. And also let us know what you think by leaving a review on any podcast app that you're listening on. All right, without further ado, here is James. Thank you very much for joining me today, James. It's a real honor, actually, to have a climate scientist on the show. It's a pleasure. Before we hit record, we were just talking about the IPCC report, and you said something very interesting about the media news cycle. Yeah, so I was talking about the frenetic period on the immediate run-up and then the immediate release of these landmark IPCC reports. So 10 days ago, it was assessment report number one, the physical basis of climate change, which is important because it tells us where we are, um, how the climate is changing, to what extent we think humans are responsible, which is basically now pretty much all of it. Is that still up for debate? <laughs> there was always... So if you look at the evolution of these IPCC reports, they have this kind of incremental evolution in the language. So if you look back at uh, the first one in... Uh, I can't remember what year it was, 90-something. Uh, it's going to be talking about... Um, there was still a certain degree of uncertainty as to how much of the observed warming was a direct contribution or a direct response or result of human actions because of climate variability. I mean, the climate goes through warmer bits and cooler bits. There's mm -hmm. solar variation, you know. Um, and at that point, even though pretty much everybody knew that humans were warming the, the climate, you couldn't really come up with um, a, a kind of a number for how much of the observed warming trend was a direct result of human actions. Uh, well, now you can, so it's it's pretty much all of it. So the these big IPCC reports are interesting for that kind of incremental change in language, um, but really they've been saying the same thing for at least 20 years or so. Mm. And then, give it 24 hours, the media is on to the next story, and there's no lack of stories, right? But um, we seem to get about 24 hours in the sun when it comes to global media coverage of what is arguably one of the greatest challenges that humanity has ever faced. Do you find it difficult to place the right kind of stories within the media when there's not these sort of, you know, COP conferences or reports coming out? Yes. So when you pitch articles to editors for newspapers, there's always got to be some angle. So there's got to be some 
new report, some landmark paper in Nature that says that the Greenland ice sheet is disintegrating or something, or some assessment report from the United Nations, or maybe the World Bank has come up with something, mm. its latest quantification of how much climate change is going to be costing. So they, there always needs to be a peg to hang the story on, um, which is understandable because there's a competing kind of news agenda. There's lots of stories that uh, news media is going to want to cover. That must be quite absurd for you, though, given your field, that anybody would think anything else is as important as, you know, the climate disaster. Yeah, but I'm, I completely understand Edith's uh, perspective, because how many times can you say the same thing? Um, and that's Until people start listening. Well, yeah, um, <laughs> there's this kind of, um, there's this assumption that there's this kind of information deficit gap. And I know lots of climate scientists and academics have been working with this model for decades, which is... Basically, if you tell people what the problem is, um, if you make it abundantly clear the severity of the situation and what is at risk, then obviously people will act accordingly. And I think there's now pretty much robust evidence that that doesn't work. It's not mm. there's not an information deficit. There's an action deficit. And the reason there's an action deficit is because, well, because of politics and economics. I mean, where would you start? Right. I find... Um... I really enjoy looking at like conspiracy theories and finding mm -hmm. the, the nugget of truth in them. So one of my favorite ones is that, um, <laughs> and it's, it, I think it's where QAnon came from, but like that lizard people rule the world that like, you know, the queen is just a reptile with human skin. Yeah. Um, and that essentially there's this cold, um, emotionless elite running things. And, you know, the lizard part of it is absolutely nuts, but actually, you know, the rest of it, the fact that there are people who don't really seem to have the best intentions at heart making decisions that impact everybody on the planet. It's kind of true. Yeah, there's this feeling that to get ahead in business, some kind of reptilian characteristics would not be an impediment. And certainly when you look at some organizations, they are kind of sociopathic. You know, they, they literally don't care. And the, no, they don't care. They can't care. They're unable to care. Mm. Uh, I was, I've, I've been talking to some people who work in finance, fossil fuel finance. So they either work for fossil fuel companies or they work for banks or they work for consultants who work in this area. And they all know that we must stop financing at least the exploration of new resources of fossil fuels. You know, we've got to stop putting exploratory rigs in the Arctic, for example. And we've also got to stop developing existing ore fields we've got to stop pouring billions of dollars into it and they know we've got to stop that because if we don't they have no chance of limiting warming to anything like two degrees celsius but they continue to do it because it makes so much money you know whilst the music plays you've still got to dance so mm. when when you were trying to work with institutions that are set up we, almost by design to continue to do the destructive thing. It's it's no wonder we haven't seen any real significant action on actual mitigation, actually stopping the burning of fossil fuels. Well, this kind of leads into the whole, um, you know, Friedrich Hayek, which was what you were talking about before we pressed record as well, like economic growth. Mm -hmm. And if your whole um, economic market is set up for inevitable growth, then by design, um, it's not going to allow for slowing down or limiting or, you know, any of these things that we need to do in these really destructive markets uh, to mitigate climate, the climate crisis. Yeah, 
Yeah, we've got we have a, a kind of a debt based growth model where we have mm. to. It's not that we need to grow individual economies or the global economy because we want because we want to be richer. It's because we need to do that in order to service the debt, which also then leads to larger economies, larger you know consumption of energy and material resources. So there is this. It's a kind of growth pathology. So the problem that we've mm. got is not to decarbonize. Our current global industrialized civilization—it's to industrialize, it's to decarbonize this thing which is getting larger by two to four percent each and every year. So the the treadmill is going faster and faster, and so our job gets harder and harder the longer and longer we leave actual decarbonization. On that, now I came across your work、um, in the article that you published in the Conversation in April about net zero because I'm a journalist. Um, you, you know, we we're not、um, <laughs> we're not as perhaps detailed as academics, but I think we get the same. We have the same sort of sixth sense for when something seems a bit off, and you need to go and and dig a little bit. So the whole thing of like carbon credits and carbon offsetting and net zero for ages, I feel like it just doesn't feel right. And I'm not, I can't exactly put my finger on why, but I just don't believe it. And then I, I read your article, and I was like, oh, this guy knows <laughs> this. Everybody needs to read this. So I read it again、uh, before we came on this call, and I was hoping that you could kind of give you know the history of net zero to actually explain you know how pathetic and how much of a fallacy it actually is going forward. Where do you want me to start? At the beginning.、Oh, wow. <laughs> I mean, the beginning, the beginning. It would be. I, I mean, it depends on who you talk about. That would be、um, European colonialism. Or even before the Industrial Revolution. So let's start with, with let's let's talk about it in the context of ideas around、um, the the upsurge of interest around climate change late nineteen eighties and, and early nineteen nineties. So nineteen eighty eight, Jim Hansen gives his landmark testimony to、um, the U.S. Senate. I think it was. I think it was the Senate or Congress, in which he said, "Look, it's we can the." The signal of anthropogenic or human-caused climate change is now clear. We can see where this is going.、Uh, if we don't decarbonize, we're gonna we're heading towards disaster. The formation of the IPCC,、um, and then the first sort of assessment reports that follow a year after that. Then you know COP number one later this year we're gonna have COP number twenty six.、Mm. Right, gives you an indication of how long we've been talking about climate change. So back then. The hope was that we would be able to rapidly decarbonize, such that we would limit warming to some something like about two degrees Celsius. The idea of the two degrees Celsius warming, and more lately the one point five degrees Celsius warming, has been a sort of evolution of our understanding of what represents dangerous climate change.、Um, but in the absence of any specific figure, there was always this idea: we're going to have to decarbonize because we're going to have to stop what Hansen back in the eighties called the dangerous interference with the Earth's climate. And back then, we thought that we could do it through essentially energy switching. So, for example, if we stop burning coal and we use gas, because you get much less carbon dioxide from gas than coal,、mm. we're going to be able to do it that way. And then there was some interest in using or even offsetting some of the emissions from burning fossil fuels with natural sinks. So, for example, forests and restoring forests, and they would draw down carbon dioxide.、Um, But given the pace of growth of the global economy and the, the pace of growth of fossil fuel use, within a few years, within about five years or so, it was apparent that wasn't going to be sufficient. So then you've got the first use 
of the kind of technologies of that have now featured in net zero things like carbon capture and storage and that was applied to something called clean coal the idea being that if you burn coal you produce a lot of carbon dioxide so what we'll do we'll put scrubbers on the chimney we'll we'll capture the carbon dioxide and then we'll put it deep underground and that idea it sounds great and it was used an awful lot by coal companies and and the coal political lobby and it's never worked there's been a single kind of um, demonstrator type project which is done end-to-end burning of coal capture and then sequestration it's never worked because the for the simple reason it just makes burning coal too expensive and the reason you burn coal is because it's cheap so if yeah. you think about all the infrastructure you'd have to build around that um, then um, beyond I suppose the next really big development you've got is the landmark Paris agreement from 2015 which then said we will limit warming to well below two degrees with the best efforts for 1.5. Now, because we've been growing the global economy and growing emissions so much, by the time you get to 2015, there's no real feasible way you're going to decarbonize the global economy in time for us to be able to limit warming to no more than 1.5. You can maybe do it with a different global economy, maybe with different political or economic institutions, but the idea you'd be able to do it with continual 2% economic growth and energy and material consumption so then we've got the idea, the first sort of explicit use of net zero around our ability to remove carbon. So it's net zero and future carbon removals, which have sort of emerged as the sort of the way in which we're going to be able to limit warming to no more than 1.5 or 2. And of those sets of kind of solutions, Bex was the most promising. So Bex is bioenergy, carbon capture and storage. And if I'll briefly explain that, okay, so you've got a coal-fired power station which burns coal to make electricity. Let's not burn coal, let's burn wood, right? Because as the trees grow, they bring down carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. So then you're going to burn that in uh, the power station and then you'll capture the carbon dioxide from the chimney and then you will compress it and then you'll store it deep underground, probably a disused oil or gas field or something. And that will do two things. It will generate electricity but also reduce concentrations of carbon dioxide because as the trees grow, they're taking down carbon dioxide and then you're capturing it. You're not putting it back into the atmosphere. And for a few years, that was going to be the savior technology. Um, Mm. Well, it's not anymore because there's some really bad things about Bex. And now we're on to the next one, which is DAC, which is direct air capture. Right. That's my potted history. I suppose I would (laughs) summarize all of that by saying, um, Net zero and the policies that are coming out of net zero are are ultimately being used in order to be able to stretch budgets. If you're really serious about limiting warming to no more than 1.5, you'd be seeing global reductions of about 10% a year. And no no one has got any plans or intentions to do anything like that. So we're going to have to overshoot. So the plan is, well, at least it's proposed that we're going to overshoot 1.5, probably overshoot 2 and then deploy vast scale carbon removal technologies such that we will get back down to something like 1.5 or 2 degrees by the end of the century. And are those technologies, I assume, and I think I read, they don't exactly exist yet. It's more the understanding that, you know, future climate scientists and engineers are going to figure out how to how to do that when we really need them to. Yeah, it's our... It's our intergenerational gift. It's what we are bequeathing to Thanks. our kids. Right? <laughs> so kids, you better figure this out and you better figure mm-hmm. it out.
quickly. Many people are surprised to learn that the technologies involved in net zero don't exist at scale and that really the, the policy discussions about net zero have invented them. The reason that BECs kind of uh, came to exist, the reason that now large scale direct air capture comes to exist is because we need them, because there's literally a hole in climate policies. And the assumption is that these technologies will exist because they have to exist, because they yeah. don't exist, we're facing catastrophe. Yeah. And yet the history would show that we haven't actually managed to generate a technology or a policy that is going to adequately um, create a pathway to net zero. So you would think after 20 years, somebody would be like, hey, guys, maybe this methodology isn't working. Well, <laughs> well yes, but then maybe it is because its primary purpose is not to protect the climate, it's to mm. protect business as usual. It's to allow the continued use of fossil fuels. So it gives politicians a license to burn now and pay later. Of course, it's not us or politicians who will be paying later. It really is going to be our kids and people alive, you know, from the rest of this century. Um, and it allows them to say that they're, on the one hand, doing what's required to keep Paris alive, you know, fight for 1.5. 1.5 is still within reach, but not make any real changes in fossil fuel policy. For example, reducing subsidies or stop granting licenses for new oil and gas fields. Something that I see uh, quite often, especially on Greta's Twitter, which is obviously, you know, an awesome resource for everything to do with the climate. She says often, you know, we have we have the answers. We have the solutions. Uh, nothing about any report that comes out is surprising. We know exactly what we're doing, but we have the solutions. And yet I was sitting down thinking about it the other day, you know, OK, what what are our solutions? I know that we need to stop using fossil fuels, but I don't think I know of any sort of renewable energy that could be scaled out tomorrow to completely replace like there's there's not this focus on I think communicate or maybe there is from climate scientists and the media is failing but communicating no we have this we just need to do it like what are some of the solutions that we could roll out and scale out uh, tomorrow to replace fossil fuels that's the big question ah, okay. uh, yeah you're not going to expect a, a simple answer are you I, uh, what would be ideal in terms of how our global industrialized civilization work is that if we could do a hot swap? A hot swap? A hot swap. So basically, we would take all the fossil fuel infrastructure, all the energy that fossil fuels produce, and we would swap it for whatever, whether that's wind, wave, solar, nuclear fission, you know, tidal, whatever it is, you know. Um, and then that, then we wouldn't have to see any significant change. Now, obviously, there's tremendous vested interest. There's tremendous pressure for us to present climate solutions like that. Politicians, for example, get very nervous when climate policies are presented in ways in which it would require or maybe even demand individual change. So Tony Blair infamously in the 1990s said, you can't tell people not to fly on hot, not to uh, take a flight to go on holiday. You know, people are sick of the English weather. Um, it will be electoral, maybe not electoral suicide, but it's going to be very, very politically unpopular. Just recently, in fact, or ongoing, you've got debates within the UK Conservative Party about what's the cost of net zero. There's been a number of editorials being um, produced by a relatively small number of Conservative MPs, which are already arguing net zero is too expensive. The UK is being too ambitious. China's not pulling its weight. We can't afford it. Um, 
But really, when you look at where we are and what needs to be done, we do need to see some significant restructuring in some elements of society. So one way you can capture some of that is um, at the moment, electricity generation, if you think about all the energy that humans use, so it's not just electricity, but it's um, uh, liquid fuels, for example, in transport or aviation or shipping and things like that. The current uh, amount of energy globally is something like 50% or so that comes from electricity. Um, there's a big lot of variability in terms of countries. But if you look um, globally, in order for us to be able to decarbonize everything, that's probably going to have to go up to something like 80%. So, for example, you would not power a car using an internal combustion engine like petrol or diesel. You would power it with an electric um, engine. And therefore, the energy is going to have to come from electricity generation. So we're going to have to do an awful, an awful lot more generating of electricity. Um, so when you begin to look at those kind of structural changes and then potentially the behavioral changes as well, then you can begin to map a way or a scenario in which you could decarbonize quickly enough. Right. But it is the case that there isn't some kind of magic technology that you can just replace like for like. You might see quite significant changes to energy infrastructure, like national grids and things like this. And really, that's where the problems begin, because you're starting to push against not just engineering infrastructure, but political and economic infrastructure. The problem isn't so much that we don't know how to decarbonize. The problem is we don't know how to stop continual extraction of fossil fuels because it still produces tremendous amounts of economic and political power. So you would uh, then, to summarize, you know, capitalism is a huge driving factor then in the um, carbonization of the Earth's climate. Some people would definitely argue that capitalism is at the root cause of climate change. I would not disagree with that, but I would also observe that there have been other imperatives for growth. So I have, I've got some... I've got some weird ideas, I think, about <laughs> you could look at our you could look at our civilization almost kind of like an organism. It's got like a growth imperative, like all or biological mm -hmm. organisms. Um, and it's currently using capitalism as something of a useful idiot. You know, the application of free markets and, and debt fuel growth is tremendously effective at, at producing increases in um, the size of civilization because it just continues to increase energy and material consumption. But, you know, less prosaically, uh, certainly there is a problem in how we conduct capitalism, right? Um, and this notion of, of perennial growth, certainly I think is, is something that we would need to look at. And already they're beginning, you know, some politicians are beginning to look at it seriously. Um, there's still an awful lot of, the minute you mentioned growth policies or degrowth, you'll get a lot of flack, really, because it's you're not being seen as a serious person, because that's how civilization works. Mm. You know, it's almost like a given, like a like a natural law or something. Mm. But certainly, I find it hard to see how you can undertake such radical decarbonization and essentially leave capitalism unscathed or unchanged, let's say. I think that's it's really interesting what you say about you know civilization or society as an organism because um i watched a documentary not long ago and i can't remember what it's called and i can't even remember the civilization that it was talking about perhaps mesopotamia you know something really really ancient 
and they fell because of climate change and well perhaps climate change is the the wrong word but they meddled with their environment so so much by building these canals and reservoirs for water that after a, a couple of hundred years, they couldn't grow crops anymore. They'd redirected too much of the water and they couldn't solve it in time. And that was how that great ancient civilization fell. So this kind of continual push to, to do more and be more and create more and have more is definitely not, I think, um, a manifestation of capitalism within humans, but probably capitalism is a manifestation of that growth desire that that we've all shared throughout you know the millennia of human civilization um don't know what the answer is donut economics catering with anyone <laughs> well yeah i mean there's no there's no lack of new thinking about how you can live in for example planetary boundaries so kate's developed you know an amazing framework and kate's very very clever in that she's growth agnostic she doesn't demand mm. degrowth it could be that the economy could grow it could be that it's static it could be that it needs to shrink really that's the second order question the first order question is are you within planetary boundaries and are you within your social um, foundation so basically it gets you to think about what's an economy for if it's mm. not providing for people if it's actually impairing you know your kids future then what value is it delivering I mean if it if the global economy is somehow some kind of unstoppable force that's going to lead to the transgression of planetary boundaries, then by that definition, it's almost worthless. Absolutely. And yet we have this manner of only valuing things in terms of GDP or in terms of you know financial value, um, which kind of leads us into carbon offsetting, which is one of the tools I read that it predates net zero. But this idea of like, you know, entrusting Bolsonaro in Brazil... Um, to not illegally cut down any forests and offer them all up as carbon credits to, to companies and, and other nations. Um, and essentially only then valuing the, devaluing all of the biodiversity, all of the indigenous lands, all of the history, and just putting a financial value on it. To me, that, that carbon offsets feeds into the same sort of political economical problem that brought us to a state where we need uh, to decarbonize the atmosphere. It's certainly part of the narrative of the commodification of nature. So the reason mm. that we value the rainforest or a, or a boreal forest is because of the service it provides. So ecosystem services is a framework which tries to, I think with the very best of intentions, and sometimes it absolutely does work, it, it tries to push back against this idea that these, you know, um, wilderness or unproductive lands or uninhabited lands don't really have any economic value and they say well no it does it has tremendous amounts of value it might regulate the climate it might be uh, places where if it's a marine ecosystem where it's an important nursery for different fisheries so it's where young fish might grow up and and then they'll swim out to sea and become a commercial catch which makes money this way but of course what you're doing with that is you are putting nature further within this sort of almost self-destructive economic system and it makes it just a fungible good so you can swap one ecosystem for another so if if that forest is worth a million then as long as i as long as i either give you a million dollars or i give you some other service to the value of a million dollars i can do what i want with the forest i turn it into timber or, or you know toilet paper or something um the idea of 
And the idea of offsetting and trying to pay for the amount of carbon that forest, existing forests um, capture, again, is very well intentioned, but it's obviously very, very problematic. Um, it's at worst, it could be a form of neo-colonialism where we're, we are basically the global rich north is basically paying the, the developing south not to develop um, their mm. resources, which we developed centuries ago and they can't do that now because we developed our resources centuries ago mm -hmm. because we essentially got here first mm -hmm. um and also if you're thinking about offsetting in terms of biomass and trees it's kind of a risky thing i mean just last week there was a fire in a forest in california that was being used to offset the carbon emissions from corporations such as bp um so you, you can't assume that trees are going to capture carbon over the timescales we want, which is thousands of years, really. There's, there's yeah. no good at coming back out in 100 years. That, that carbon's got to stay in there for good. Yeah, it's a really interesting point that I, I don't think I see being raised enough with all of the fires that are going on all over the world. Um, <clears throat> that like these things essentially just need to be left alone to do their job without being specifically given a role in an economy um, because like, we, we can't buy our way out of this situation that we've made by buying into a lot of different things. Yeah, the, um, the ideas of rewilding or habitat restoration. Mm. So if you just leave it, I mean, the Earth's system is 4,600 million years old. It's more mm. than capable of just sorting itself out. And then you'll see recovery of biodiversity. You'll see the increased resilience of that ecosystem. And then the carbon sequestration often comes for free. Yeah. You know, as you just let these systems recover and, and rewild, then it's great. The, the problem that we've got by using elements of the earth system or ecosystems as part of, let's say, net zero policies is that we're constantly trying to optimize, cost optimize the approach, basically make them work as fast as possible. Because once you might have, I don't know, several thousand square kilometers and you just say, well, let's just leave it and it will sequester amount of carbon. If you go in there with industrial monoculture tree plantations, which would devastate biodiversity, mm. possibly have impacts on water security, food security, um, displace indigenous peoples, you're going to sequester more carbon. And so if, if the, the value or the way you measure the success is how much carbon can you capture in a certain period of time, then you're, you're constantly um, going to have these sort of perverse incentives to do things which on one hand sequesters carbon very quickly, but on the other hand has all these potentially devastating impacts. I didn't know that plantations could potentially sequester more carbon than just sort of a, a natural forest because I thought that given a plantation, you would have to till the soil, which would release um, carbon. And then generally speaking, the land is maintained in a certain way, which means you're keeping other plants and other biodiversity, biodiversity from growing, which would then also sequester carbon. I didn't know that they could be more effective at that. They can, they can certainly be more effective if you assume they're being used in like a Bex scenario. Right. Because what you want, you want to produce that mass as quickly, you want to produce as much biomass as quickly as possible with the idea that you're going to fell it, but then you're going to, as soon as you fell it, then you're going to be planting more. Yeah, but this plays into the whole thing of like, yeah, you know, forests being an infinitely renewable and sustainable source. Soil degradation happens. You can't keep planting the same thing in the same place forever. You need to just leave it alone <laughs> in order for it to do its job. <laughs> yeah, which is, yes. So which is why also when you look at um, the, the land requirements for 
for someone like Bex. Obviously, it depends on how much carbon you want to remove, but some scenarios were generating a land service area equivalent to like twice the size of India. And that land has got to be found. And, it, and mm. um, it's got to be found in areas where it's not going to lead to significant soil loss. And, you know, it would be nice to think it wouldn't have impacts on biodiversity or land uh, or water or energy security, you know. But, it, it, you know, there just isn't enough space, really. There's yeah, not enough space to pack it all in. Of course. And the thing that you see so much as well is that it's always going to happen in the other side of the world. And there's always going to be, you mentioned indigenous peoples that are displaced. I mean, that happens all the time. It's happening. I'm covering right now in Malaysia. Um, There's a phase two of a fancy hotel being built and a tribe has been kicked off of their historical land, their ancestral land. And and they're also destroying mudflats and mangroves, which I read today are four times better at capturing Mm -hmm. carbon than forests. You know, that happens for a five-star resort. What's what are what are developing nations, governments, and people going to be willing to do to save their own skin from an uninhabitable earth? You know, as you said, there's going to be perverse, um, perverse. What did you say? Perverse, perverse incentives. Yes, perverse incentives to go off and do whatever you like to somebody else on the other side of the world. Yeah, I mean, you can you can completely understand the economic rationale, both at lead, regional and local. Uh, and national government, you know, earning that foreign currency through increasing tourism. Um, so, I mean, many years ago, I was in Gunungmulu, right, in um, Sarawak, and there there were discussions about a golf course, you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, because at the time, not really many people, not many people at all, were going to bits in in the rainforest. That particular section of the. Um, rainforest and surround because it was hard to get to the facilities basically it's just like a bamboo hut you know yeah. and it's earning so much money but if you put in you know a decent size airstrip with a with an airport terminal and then a hotel and then uh a large you know 18 hole golf course you've got an international attraction which is going to generate a lot of dollars you know and <laughs> on the one hand you've got arguably something which is priceless one of the world's greatest biodiversity hotspots things that have been there for you know like thousands of years um but in monetary terms it's practically worthless i mean the indigenous peoples that might still live there don't really have any political or economic voice um you just it's um you're just looking at what might be these you know towering diptoterocarp trees you could imagine them you know just as, as stacks of cash <laughs> just waiting yeah. just waiting there to be used yeah. and exploited and um, you can certainly see that with with increased incentives to sequester carbon. So, for example, some people think the argument is a carbon price. If we put a proper price or tax on the amount of carbon that we emit, then that would that would um, compel organisations, individuals, nations to not burn so much fossil fuels. But it also really accelerate offsetting schemes, and then put all those kind of incentives in place to say, well, look, rather than have indigenous ecosystems, which might sequester this much, we could we could do other bits and pieces with that land. We could use it for becks, you know, the palm oil devastation, yeah. the, the deforestation driven by palm oil, which in part was promoted by EU directives on renewables in um, biofuel, in, in, for example, biodiesel, for example, all these kind of well-intentioned attempts to try to minimise impacts, but never really get to the root problem which is stopping burning fossil fuels they're always trying to trying to avoid direct confrontations with with that fundamental seat of power really Mm. 
And it is funny, you know, I think for so many people with the the climate change, and I don't want to call it debate, but when people, your average Joe thinks about the climate change, you know, there's there's one big material that always comes up as enemy number one, and that's plastic, you mm -hmm. know, which is only like 5% of the oil that we use is actually turned into plastic, and it's is technically recyclable and all of these things, you know, you don't want to be replacing plastic with paper because that's unsustainable and all this sort of stuff. Um, but in terms of actually getting people to understand, you know, okay, um, if you're willing to give up your plastic straw, you're going to have to give up your car. Like your straw doesn't mean anything mm -hmm. in terms of what like we're up against. Um, and yet people, I see the words all the times in the news, fossil fuel, and yet there just still seems to be such a massive um, resistance to saying we just need to stop burning it. We just need to use something else. And in the interim, if there's nothing else to use, we need to change our lifestyles. That's really difficult for many politicians to even say. Mm. You know, so you've got it's not as if there aren't ideas about how you could degrow some economies. So the idea of um, convergence and contraction would be that the richest nations don't really need any more development. We don't need any more mm. wealth. Let's say, for example, the United Kingdom. Really, it should undertake a period of kind of managed contraction which allows developing nations to continue to exploit fossil fuels whilst they transition to renewable energies over a longer time scale because they don't have anything like the same resources that we do, let's say, for example, in the UK. But just the entire way in which politics is built around headline GDP numbers and employment numbers and particular interpretation, let's say, capitalism, would mean it's it, that's an incredibly difficult thing to do. So there is a, a cross-party parliamentary group that um, it's kind of a limits to growth group that takes inspiration from the 1972 book of the same name, which looked at how you might be able to avoid some catastrophic overshoot and collapse scenarios. And in there, there are a number of MPs who are looking seriously at degrowth economics and degrowth politics. What would it translate into, you know? But when you talk to anyone else, I mean, I'm, I remember I had, I was at a conference once and I was sat next to the conference and I was sat next to a, 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 an economist who worked for the European Central Bank. Um, really, really smart guy. Um, I got talking about degrowth and I asked him, so how would you, you know, what would that mean? And um, it's like smoke came out of his ears because his, his <laughs> entire job is to manage inflation based on debt based growth. Right. That's what an economist for all central banks do. That you've got to play this game between um, usually um, kind of a policies focusing around interest rate. How cheap do you make money? And you want to make it as cheap as possible because you want to make produce as much growth. But if you make it too much, then then there's going to be inflationary pressures. So there's a constant trade off between inflation and growth, and that's their entire universe. And that degrowth, you're actually asking them to no, no, actually devalue the size of the economy. And you can't just change the pluses to a minus and all these complicated <laughs> sums, right? In the entire worldview, that entire firmament is completely, um, complete, I mean, arguably none of it really works anymore. You're kind of, you're almost off the map. Um, so I do have sympathy with, with politicians and economists who can't even begin to understand or imagine what explicit degrowth policies could mean, even if they understand that they are exactly the sort of things that we might need in order just to buy us some time, you know, just maybe a few years, maybe five, 10 years of going back to Kate Rower's idea of 
you know, sometimes you might need to degrow. And then when you're back in the planetary boundary, then you might be, we might be able to, you know, increase the size of economies again. But the imperative of growth is absolutely built in to the way in which the, our entire civilization now operates. Have you seen any good examples or hypothetical examples of climate policies or degrowth or growth agnostic policies, barring Kate Raworth's donut economies, that you think if we implemented them today, yeah, we could stay within the 1.5 degrees um, barrier, boundary? In terms of policies, no, I can't. I mean, there's there's lots of ideas and theory. So Georgos Kallis, Jason Hickel, Julius Steinberger, there's a, there's a number of, sometimes they're quite high profile. Uh, they're writing important books. They, they're featuring in, you know, public discussions about the importance of degrowth. We've yet to see that really translate into policies. And really, when you think about degrowth, it's going to be, it will probably come from a constellation of policies. Hmm. No one's going to go, okay, so we're going to elect me as the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, and I will uh, seek to undertake a decrease in the global economy. No one's, <laughs> it's like, yeah, I will make you poorer. Right? <laughs> no one, arguably, that's not a great political slogan. But I think the degrowth would come as a consequence of doing other things. Mm. Uh, and one thing I think it would have to do, it would have to look at the distribution of resources right now. So, for example, so Julia Steinberger has done some really interesting work in which she's kind of approached the problem almost from first principles. And so the problem could be formulated thus. Um, in the middle of this century, there's going to be about 9 billion people alive. There's going to be maybe 11 by the end of the century. But by, say, 2050, there's going to be 9 billion how are we going to make sure that everybody has enough, you know, um, material and energy resources? How can we make sure everyone's going to be above that social floor? They are going to have good, decent lives at the same time as making sure we don't transcend planetary boundaries. We don't, you know, crash through 1.52 or even three degrees Celsius. And what the analysis shows is there's more than enough resources for everyone to have a good quality of life and for us to reduce our environmental impacts. Of course, the problem is is how those resources are distributed now and how they, how it looks like they're going to be distributed by the middle of this century because inequality is increasing. So really the problem then isn't degrowth. The problem is distribution. The problem is, you know, from where are the fruits of economic development or the economies uh, producing? Where is it going? How, how do we all benefit? And yes, the argument is that global poor, the very, very poorest people in the global population are not as quite as poor as they used to be. And there's a lot of argument and debate about the stats, right? But I mean, we're quibbling over maybe a dollar a day or something, mm. right? Whereas really, there's overwhelming evidence now that the, most of the benefits of continuing economic growth is going to a smaller and smaller fraction of humanity. You know, we live in a world where billionaires can fund private space races, where they can live their life out on, you know, floating super yacht palaces, Mm. Um, so I think degrowth would then come as a consequence of looking at to rebalance economies. And you realize you don't need, if you're really motivated to improve the lot of, of the people who have least in society, we don't, you know, the rising tide doesn't need to lift all boats. All you need to do is just redistribute some of those resources. And because impacts scale with wealth, 
most of the carbon emissions are coming from a relatively small fraction of humanity mm. you're you're addressing climate change impacts and environmental impacts and a whole load of other things too of course that's incredibly difficult because you are having to deal directly with the very wealthiest and most people, uh, most powerful people in the global population. So there's no surprise there's going to be tremendous resistance to something like that. Definitely. I mean, you're going to get called it's McCarthyism. You're going to get called a filthy communist, and you know, and worse, hard for imagine. many future <laughs> conversation. <laughs> but I mean, it is it is interesting though because um, one argument that I see from you know kind of centrists um, is that well. Like if we if we if we redistribute resources in order to help other e economies and peoples that need it most to develop, then their consumption is going to increase, which is then going to impact um, the the climate because, as you say, it's a very small fraction of humanity that is emitting the most um, emissions. If you look at it, per, I'm not sure the numbers off the top of my head, but per person, UK, Europe, USA, it is outrageous. Mm -hmm. um, our percentage of what we're culpable for essentially um so what you said earlier as well about you know um bigger economies uh, the lead economies right now contracting in order to let developing nations continue their development perhaps by using fossil fuels well then what do you do though about the consumption and then also what do you do when you take away um historical knowledge and what i mean by that is um for example in sarawak right now there are many many people who have been in lockdown for over a year. Uh, they've been unable to work. The government has been absolutely terrible at giving out aid. So they're going into the jungle to get food. They still have that knowledge and the jungle still serves them in that way. Um, and yet, you know, <laughs> I'm thinking about where I come from in Scotland. If you put people into lockdown and didn't give them any aid and any food and went figure yourselves out, you know, you, you wouldn't have anybody going off into the highlands to, <laughs> to hunt or whatever. Like, good luck. You know, as you develop, you also lose that knowledge that kind of keeps you in balance or maybe would be a possible way for, I don't know, certain civilizations to just continue as they are if that was their choice, um, which would then help the fight against the climate. So it just seems to, there's always these pieces working together, uh, not necessarily in tandem, but almost constantly in opposition um, to the end goal which is obviously to decarbonize. And that, yeah, that, that leads to really interesting discussions about what is development? Hmm. Is, is forcibly displacing kind of semi-nomadic peoples from the rainforests of Malaysia, putting them in concrete billets, um, robbing them of their access to ancestral lands, educating them and assuming that they're going to become productive members of yeah. an industrialized economy, yeah. development um development for those people well if you measure it in terms of dollars it is right because if you're increasing the workforce and you're increasing the size of economies and you're, and you're generating trade then numbers might go up and then you'd say that that's a notion of development so certainly within i mean it's not just in in some of the degrowth literature but in lots of the discussions around how can we respond to the climate and e ecological emergency? There's lots of really important discussion about what constitutes development. Mm. We have grown, certainly industrialized nations, the narrative is, is the industrial revolution transformed humanity because it gave us the, the power literally to build things like um, sewage systems and a national health service and immunization and all these amazing things that have led to the, the 
the vast increase in life expectancy and also quality of life. Well, yes, but then there's also a lot of research that shows that process sort of saturates out beyond a certain mm-hmm. level of development. It doesn't really confer any additional advances. And you can look at that today when you when you sort of plot life expectancy against GDP. And you can see that some nations have much, much smaller economies in the United States, but they far outscore them in terms of life expectancy. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. And, and other other metrics just yeah. about. Uh, like quality of life as well yeah but this notion that development and industrialization development is going to be the the process of our salvation so that you know the industrialization and development is going to solve all of humanity's problems including the problems that were caused by industrialization development that's the kind of the technological technocratic solutionist approach which you're certainly going to see at cop 26 later this year all the nation nations are going to rock up and they're not going to be talking about degrowth they're going to be talking about carbon capture and sequestration and nature-based solutions and all within a, a you know very rosy and optimistic picture of of net zero and there won't really be any discussion about what makes a human life worthwhile what is our relationship to to the earth system how do we derive value you know no, all, no. none of that stuff's going to get in the yeah. between the you know there'll be the people with the passes who actually make the decisions and there'll be all the hippies and everybody else <laughs> or whatever the pressure groups and the lobbyists outside looking in and I'm afraid all those kind of discussions won't won't get a look in and it's funny to me that um, we don't apply this very basic principle which is like it, are the people who cause the problem the right people to fix it I remember when the term Anthropocene started getting used and I was at a philosophical conference in Switzerland and this philosopher presented, you know, the Anthropocene and what that meant from a, I don't know, continental philosophical standpoint or whatever. Um, and started talking about, you know, the moral imperative of humanity to fix X, Y and Z. And I stuck up my hand and I went, excuse me, um, but like, do you not think we should just leave things alone like surely this impetus to start doing things to fix the problem just falls into the same psychological trap, which is that man has some kind of possession or ownership over mm-hmm. the planet and therefore total responsibility. And therefore we're going to be the ones who fix it, even though it's that exact same attitude that got us into this problem in the first place. And she did not understand my question. Must have been the accent. <laughs> <laughs> I have a very neutral accent, I'll have you know. <laughs> um, she was like, you must not understand it's the anthropocene it's man-made so we have to and i was like do you Mm -hmm. but you don't like here it's man-made like just stop and she she actually she actually cut me off and went and you know does anybody else have any question because this isn't going to go anywhere and afterwards this like total nutty philosopher um i won't say his name came up and German guy, and he was like, yeah, nobody understands, yeah, we're all screwed, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that was it. And no, But nobody else in the conference was speaking about the fact that perhaps there's some kind of um, reptilian impetus here that we don't understand and therefore cannot be harnessed to, like, save humanity because that's not in our history. There's a really important discussion to be had about even the word of the Anthropocene because it puts humanity mm. at the centre. 
And that's fine in, in that humans have become a geological force. The things that we are doing, or at least our interactions with our globalized, industrialized civilization means that we're producing geological scale forces, but it doesn't mean we're in control. Yeah. So I love this analogy of, um, of a flight deck or like a cockpit in a, in a commercial aircraft. And the role of science and academia, arguably, is to produce the instrumentation, is to, is to show on this, you've got all these buttons and, and dials and, and figures and levers and stuff. And so what we do, earth system scientists, climate scientists, academia, is we provide all the in information that populates that flight deck. So where we are, how fast we're going, the radar, where we, you know, what, what's ahead. <clears throat> and there's only a relatively small fraction of humanity at the controls, whether they're CEOs or presidents or prime ministers or something. And it's their job to interpret the information and then to, to pull the stick such that we steer, you know, spaceship earth around some kind of, you know, mountain of climate change or something. Um, and it puts humans, at, God. well, right. <laughs> let's assume it's in their interest too, but it yeah. puts, it put, literally puts humans in the center of this kind of this cockpit or, or flight deck. But I've come to the conclusion that actually, if we were to make our way to the front of the, you know, the aircraft or something, there wouldn't be any seats because there's nowhere else to, for us to sit because it's not, mm. it's not built for us. We, we're not actually in control. We're, we are scarily at the mercy of these kind of growth imperatives of the of civilization itself. Mm. And so it's not only hubris, it's actually very dangerous to assume that tomorrow morning or at COP26 later this year, humanity will gather, you know, nod wisely at all this kind of information <clears throat> and then go and make a few tweaks to, you know, um, our civilization such that we avoid catastrophe. I think the situation is much, much more complicated, although we've got much less agency that we we think much less control and really in, in a number of important respects the way our civilization is developing is not really for us we tell ourselves this story that we all benefit from you know more goods and services and even when there's abundant evidence that we don't mm. it's sort of got its own growth imperative and it's largely insensitive to what we want and there's no reasons why it can't overshoot and completely have a catastrophic impact with planetary boundaries yeah, totally. And something I find so interesting about discussing, you know, like who's in charge is um, that there's kind of this desire to blame like sociopathic tendencies or psychopathic tendencies or whatever. And it's like any one of us would be the same if we were in that position, pretty much. Like if you'd followed that exact same uh, path, uh, say born into wealth and want to continue producing wealth or, you know, you've built a business from the ground up and now it you know, you're fucking Jeff Bezos and you can do what you want. Like the psychological pressure that you've been under throughout your journey as a human being has kind of formed you into that. And I think so many of us uh, can kind of take this moral high road because we're not at the controls. Mm -hmm. And actually, if you, you know, it would be extremely difficult to act in a, a different way if any of us were in the same um, circumstance. So we do need to be looking at like those psychological imperatives to better understand what is driving us or what are we being driven by um perhaps putting it in the passive tense is actually more like more descriptive or more truthful mm -hmm. so for example the the ceo of shell mm. his motivation to not abide by the recent dutch legal case which basically says you've got to decarbonize rapidly is that i can't do that because i'd have to fire all these people yeah, I can't do this because, you know, I wouldn't be able to return value to the shareholders, you know, and yeah. 
my primary responsibility is that my primary responsibility is not to ensure a habitable world for my kids and grandkids. Yeah. It's, you know, to, to manage this organization and, and everything that, that goes along with it in terms of the imperative for growth, not just stasis. Mm-hmm. So there will always be, there will always be instances where we can motivate in action. And yes, we, fortunately, we plebs, we don't have that kind of responsibility. You know, we do our bit, we try here and there. But we don't have anything like that amount of power. But obviously, you you only get that amount of power by essentially, I wouldn't say subscribing, but certainly being at least initially all right with how that that system works. Yeah, definitely. But then I, I sometimes bring this up in other in conversations. Um, there was a really interesting article written by one of Walt Disney's granddaughters saying that she wasn't until she was in her 60s that she realized her wealth was being managed in a way that was exploitative to others. You know, because that was just how she grew up and that was mm-hmm. what she was told and trust these experts and they'll manage your money and, you know, blah, 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 blah. Uh, I think it was about tax loopholes. She said, you know, it wasn't until she was well into sort of the twilight of life that she realized it wasn't right and that she was doing something wrong. So it's that similar thing of, you know, how do we explain citizenship, essentially, to people in a world where our markets, our economies and our politics have no concept of it? Because it is that citizenship that is going to keep us alive. Intergenerational citizenship, citizenship for people that are suffering on the other side of the world because of our actions. Um, and yet it's a concept that is sort of dramatically missing from any of these conversations. Yeah, and you could even go further and argue for a citizenship with, with the planet itself. Mm. So stop viewing the planet as some kind of resource. Obviously, the kind of the Abrahamic religions put humans in dominion over uh, the natural world, the God created, you know, the fish and the forests for us. So there for us to, in fact, we've always got like a theological imperative to exploit them and go out and be, and reproduce. And whereas you don't really have to look far for, you know, multiple instances of, you know, more indigenous knowledge, which, you know, pretty good evidence. These people have been living sustainably in their kind of uh, indigenous ecosystems, indigenous natural systems for millennia. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a pretty hard selection process you can put on that because those that, that didn't respect their natural environments and systems you know, didn't hang around for very long. So there's lots that we mm-hmm. could learn from people, peoples who have been living, I wouldn't want to use the word harmony. I mean, they're still exploiting, they're still extracting. It's just the levels, the you know, the rates at which we're taking resources. Um, but certainly the, the idea that we've got um, kind of collective humanity, but then also a collective place within this earth system itself. And the earth system itself is something really quite miraculous and something to, to value and cherish. And if you're looking for where value comes from, then arguably we've, we already had it. And in fact, Mm. we're actually at risk of losing it. Yeah. I think in terms of looking at, as you say, value, there's a lot to be learned from indigenous cultures, but to me, like there is, it is an absurdity to sort of start inviting indigenous people on stage to audiences of you know millions because you know digital screening these international conferences and be like please save us help mm-hmm. us like we don't live in the same economy we don't live in the same environment it's impossible to it would take you know generations of rewilding and of relearning certain pieces of knowledge um in order for like a country like the uk you know to find any kind of balance quote unquote again um like it's not it's not that it it's not on them to save us because I don't I don't really ascribe to that whole mm-hmm. you know it's on all of us to save each other, um but like they can't 
They can't. They can teach us stuff about values, but frankly, those values were always accessible and available to us. You know, you just look at how children are um, with the world around them or whatever. Like, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. And then also the other thing is like development. Like we were talking about that earlier. What constitutes a developed nation? Well, you know, education is a big thing that I find complicates this debate mm -hmm. hugely. Um, because if you take like your field, for example, scientist, a climate scientist, um, that that can only exist and that can only go as far as it needs to within a developed con the context of a developed nation, you know, um, and what kind of education would we be sacrificing in order to fill up on another and we're all getting it's all getting a little bit abstract now and I do apologize but just in terms of the things that we are willing to sacrifice I do fear that education would be one of the first things out of this kind of um fake moral pretext that we need to learn to be better or whatever um so science will go and other things will go and the, you know, Abrahamic religions that got us into this in the first place will stay type thing. <laughs> that sounds a little bit like um, sort of dark mountain type thinking of the inevitable retreat of civilization. Um, and there's a whole bunch of stuff to talk mm. about that. I mean, but I completely agree that if you live in industrialization like the UK, in the absence of radical reductions in the total size of the population there's you know there's no way we can make substantive changes to the amount i mean we can make some changes to the amount well, actually quite a lot changes to the amount of energy materials we consume but we're still going to maintain essentially an industrialized or post-industrialized nation yeah um there is an awful lot to be done to increase domestic food security and everyone's got a role mm -hmm. to play in that but, the, you know, civilization sort of acts like a ratchet. About 13,000 years ago, when those first people started to, you know, plant crops, they started to settle down, they started to accumulate surplus. Once you go past that, and it, it, it's, it's not just about losing the indigenous knowledge, you, you are able to sustain populations at much higher densities for that area of, of land. And then you kind of... you maybe trapped is one way of saying it, but there's like a ratchet. You can't go back. Mm. And there's been a series of ratchets through our exploitation of increasing amounts of fossil fuels and also now through increasing amounts of renewables, mm. such that it's very, very hard to sort of go back down the energy and material ladder other than mm -hmm. potentially really abrupt and ugly collapses. Yeah, and there's a whole subreddit dedicated to that. Yes. <laughs> I'm sure you've seen it. <laughs> people preparing and yet there was um oh, what was it there was some big report released earlier in the year i think it might have been the wef that warned of you know an asset bubble uh breaking in three to five years warned of a couple of things and then you know potential civilian collapse mm -hmm. by 2040 um so we're laughing but it, it's possible yeah i mean it's that's what what is really quite extraordinary it's not impossible by any stretch of the imagination for us to warm the climate beyond four mm. degrees by the end of this century and you would really be looking at the potential collapse of industrialized civilization so you would think we would do everything in our power to get as far away from that as possible but thus far we haven't really made it any substantive change 
it's an it's almost impossible to imagine that's why we create you know heaven and hell and all of the other iterations of it you know the fact that we only have one life not immortal and we can't just do what we want um <clears throat> it's very very difficult for us to wrap our brains around i have one uh well, a final final question that i ask everyone but what role do you think not what role but do you think academia has to change in any way in order to keep up with the climate crisis? Because academics have been talking about this for decades, have been fundamentally ignored for a very, very long time. Um, and I read something in your article about the fact that, you know, you rely on hypotheses and models and it all takes time and you have to beg for funding and da 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 Yeah, is there a way that you think academia needs to be reformed or perhaps even radicalised? Uh, in order to keep up with this problem? Academia certainly needs to change in ways that many academics, I would assume, might not be very comfortable with. At the moment, there's a line between academia and certainly activism or a line between mm -hmm. academia and maybe even the rest of society. The model very much is, I will generate my academic output, I'll publish it, Every now and again, I might have to do some kind of media thing around it. But basically, it's society's job, it's politicians' job to act on that. It's not for me. In fact, there are powerful incentives for me not to get involved in that because then I might be seen as biased. So if right. I come up with calculations of future climate sensitivity and I argue strongly that we need to decarbonize, then the risk would be that if I overtly campaign for particular kind of policies or even interpretation of my results... I might be biasing the science which is actually producing it. Now, these are all very valid concerns, but it's far too late. It's far too late for academics to, and academia to essentially stand on the sidelines. So, sorry, can I interrupt? Isn't that why you have peer-reviewed journals, though? Like, surely there is um, a solution built into the existing academic framework, which is you don't just get somebody to do research and then trumpet it. It has to be peer-reviewed. Other academics get to have a say on it. There is a peer, I mean, the gold standard is peer review, which you're meant, to, you're meant to have your research subject to critical and independent review by your peers such that we're not going to let in any old nonsense, right? So that should be the self-correcting mechanism. There's a whole series of examples of academic malpractice, really. Um, I won't mention disciplines. You know, it happens, obviously. Human beings are fallible. But really, the concern isn't because there would be some that bias would actually happen. The concern mainly from academics is that they would be a, they would be subject to sustained um, and vociferous attack by the forces of delay, because that's what they've done over the past 30 years. You know, shadow funded think tanks for, by the likes of, let's say, ExxonMobil paying in some instances, individual academics actually to go around and scrutinize and rubbish, not even individual research, but individual researchers, sometimes entire departments. And every opportunity you've got to sow doubt, to disparage and devalue academics and then their academic output will and has been seized on. Right? So there's, there's multiple um, examples of that. But I think the situation is now that we're, we, that's almost becoming irrelevant because we're at the point now where no one really disputes the climate is changing. No one disputes that humans are, are the cause. And no one disputes that we've got to rapidly decarbonize. Even Exxon and the energy majors, 
they're all pretty much on board with that. What we are currently in is the next stage of delay, the next stage of protecting fossil fuel assets and all the wealth and power that's accrued, which is basically don't go too fast. If you decarbonize too fast, we risk economic growth, we risk economic growth, we're going to see job losses, political instability, right? Um, and I think it was Bill McKibben who said, you know, when it comes to climate change, winning slowly isn't any better than losing fast. You know, <laughs> if we, if we oh, if let's say we decarbonize at 1% or 2%, which would be pretty amazing, actually, even if we were able to do it, that's still not going to keep us to within two degrees, let yeah. alone 1.5. So what we need to see is quite radical change. And academics are producing the research which shows that. So one of the things that I got particularly animated about is that we generate these scenarios of net zero scenarios that would limit warming to 1.5, which are involving ever unrealistic amounts of carbon removal, you know, kind of just fantastical notions of futuristic machines that are going to miraculously remove all this carbon. But we put our we put the kind of uh, academic imprint on it. It goes in reputable journals. It gets reported by the IPC. Politicians can then use it and present it as some way that we're going to keep um, humanity safe. And even the people involved in producing the research don't believe it. Right? Even the people involved in these very complicated integrated assessment models that produce scenarios 1.5 don't think we're going to do it. Of course, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. We're heading towards three, right? So there's this increasing disconnect between what academics are doing as part of their day job and the potentially really important role they've got to be much, much more vocal and say, for example, you can't use that scenario. That scenario is just, it's, it's, un, it's not just unrealistic, it's dangerous, for example. So we're starting a project, it's called Faculty for a Future, which is meant to empower academics to do that. It's, Fantastic. Meant, it's meant to also help reform academia, because at the moment, I think academia as an institution, I'm not gonna say as an industry, because I hate to think of it as an industry, <laughs> But academia is quite happy at the moment taking money from student tuition fees or money from grants or money from governments and money from fossil fuel companies as well, mm -hmm. right? and mm -hmm. generating all this knowledge and essentially just watching humanity slide towards, you know, chaos and collapse. Yeah. It's really they've, they've got to collectively get their finger out and get much more involved in being part of the active solutions. And if nothing else, just be a much more engaged a citizen, a global citizen about it. So academia has been able to sort of not get away, but largely kind of protect itself from an awful lot of the social and um, political grief that comes from generating this kind of research. And again, the reasons for that are understandable because they were, you know, individual academics and institutions, universities were subject to attack by forces of, you know, delay. But again, they, you know, we're, we're past that point. We need to become much, much more engaged and involved. That's my advert. <laughs> Excellent. I really look forward to seeing how that project evolves. Good for you. Uh, we've got, it's going to happen. There are people who are going to work on this. And I think we might be able to do some sort of announcements of websites in the next month or so. Fucking fantastic. Awesome. Because academia, I mean, all, you know, all of the brightest minds, that's where you all are. Um, and we need to know your opinions, ultimately. Well, if we're not going to generate some of the new ideas, generate some new knowledge, and then and, and I'm not going to say no one else can, 
But if you're going to pour billions into higher education, billions into research institutes, then what the hell are they meant to be researching? What, yeah, what totally. value are they delivering? If it is nothing more than continual fantasies and nonsense about carbon removal, then that's a terrible return on your investment. <laughs> and on that note... <laughs> Very well said, James. Thank you. So my final question is, who would you like to platform? Did I tell you about this? Uh, you probably did an email that I haven't read. Right. Okay. So at the end of every show, I ask somebody who they would like to platform. And then I go and track down that, uh, converse, that person to invite them to continue the conversation on another episode. Julia Steinberger. I've already mentioned her twice. <laughs> Julia is... Her training was in physics... She became then an ecological economist and she is doing, I think, the work which is absolutely vital. Like, for example, she starts in first principles. What do you need to make sure you're going to keep humanity safe? Right. Now, that leads her to a whole series of political and economic conclusions, but she starts in first principles. So it's a fascinating kind of journey to watch how if you say you care about this, then what does that mean? What does that translate into? And she is an inspirational figure as well and that she's involved in i don't know where she finds time but she's involved in all these activities all these movements she walks the talk and she doesn't muck around when it comes to calling out individuals institutions and what needs to be done and she would be a fabulous contributor brilliant thank you so much i will track her down and thank you so much for coming on the show this was uh, it was a real honor to have such an expert and thank you for explicating all of that. Not much hope, but like... <laughs> there's always hope. Absolutely, there's hope. We might have limited agency, but we can certainly do an awful lot better than we are. I mean, really transformatively. All right. Thank you. Thank you, James. Pleasure. You can find James on Twitter at James G. Dyke. That's D-Y-K-E. Uh, where you can kind of keep up to date with everything climate that's happening in the world and obviously get his fantastic analysis and opinions on what other people are writing. He also has a book, which he didn't plug actually during this interview, which is how you know he is an academic. <laughs> it's Firestorm and Flood, The Violence of Climate Change. I haven't read it yet, but I do plan on getting my hands on a copy when I'm in the UK next week. Go and get a copy and tweet him. I'm sure he would absolutely love to know what you all think. And before you go, please don't forget to leave a five-star rating and subscribe over at platformenterprise.com where you will get these podcast episodes delivered straight to your inbox every week. You can also choose a paid subscription, by the way, which I don't plug enough, so here goes. Please, get a paid subscription. <laughs> platformenterprise.com. It is the best way to support the podcast. All right. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. See you next week.